Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.
Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be together in this hour carved out of our weeks. Good morning for, from wherever life brings you into this virtual space of worship we create together. This has been a complicated and beautiful unfolding of pain and discernment as a people, both in the city and around the nation. So I welcome you here to create space for that. We had a service planned for today that had Stephen Sondheim music and a theme of exquisite risk that was thoughtful and playful, and it just didn't fit for today. So you'll notice if you've downloaded the order of service that the music has changed and the title has changed, and I want to thank our musicians for being so flexible. Instead of those songs, we'll be singing hymns, and you can join from home, though you won't have the music for all those hymns in your order of service, but a lot of them are familiar or ones that you can pick up, even if you've never sung them before. So feel free to just listen and let them wash over you or to sing them along with us. I want to thank Rochelle Fortier-Wadibia, who's here, taken out of retirement as our worship associate. You never actually fully retire from being a worship associate. And Rochelle and I, I also want to let you know, have been leading the work. She is um, vice moderator of the board and me as senior minister of our wholeness work, our work around racial justice and equity and reflection. And last month, we had a Zoom call with probably about 15 of us, I think, on the call. And we are going to have another one this month. And I invite you, if you are interested in being part of that reflection and work of reflecting on and thinking about what we're going to commit to and do together, to write to info at uusf.org and tell us, and we'll let you know how to get, when that call is happening and whether you are able to come and how to get connected. I want to thank Amy Kelly for the flowers on our altar. Amy, who is six generations universalist, that part of our faith that has as its central doctrine a love that will not any, let anything abide, that does not speak of abundant love, love without boundaries. And so it's fitting to have her give the flowers on this day, red, the color of love, but also red and green and black, the colors of the black nationalist pride flag, flag of liberation. And so those colors, too, are choices we made to bring the spirit of this week into this hour. So welcome. I will light a candle as we have been every week, a symbol of all of you now present here in this space, symbolically all of us together, until such times as we can join together here in person. In weeks like this, I know it is particularly hard not to be together in body as well as spirit. I invite us then to sing as our first hymn of the morning, hymn number 1015, I Know I Can. The words and music for this hymn are in your order of service. So please 
Let's join in singing together. download one and these uh, orders of service these days are thick and full of invitations to be part of the community that we're building outside these walls, ways to stay connected. Oh, Reiko Odalane is here, special guest. Oh well, we'll turn the camera on her later. Um, coffee hour is a Zoom coffee hour, so we hope you'll join coffee hour. I did also want to let you know, all of you, that an important congregational meeting is going to be held today at 12.30 to approve the budget for the upcoming fiscal year that begins July 1st. So if you haven't registered for the meeting, please do that. Registration information is included in the order of service, so you can find it there. And one last very specific plug. 
is that in the summer we do really limited spans of small group ministry, which are these groups of six to ten people that meet with the facilitator for a, at regular intervals and for an hour and a half to two hours with a chance to check in and a reading and reflection questions. This great opportunity to both build community in a small group and go deep in some conversations that don't normally happen unless you make space and invite them into the room. And so summer's a great chance to try one out. Most of them, I think, are going to be happening in August, so just a few sessions in August. But if you are interested, possibly in starting in July, you can let the organizers know. And if there's a critical mass, we might start a group or two in July. Again, you can see the information for how to um, sign up. And if you're worried about Zoom, which is how a lot of these will happen, um, Greg Biggs, who's one of the co-leaders, is willing to help people figure out how to get on Zoom and how to use Zoom. And of course, there are other ways to participate um, just by calling in. So, so please let us know. Um, whether you can make time and space in your life for that. I think you will be happy you did. So there are other announcements for you to read in the order of service. Next week is our annual meeting, of course. So let me transition into this worship service. When the world around us gets loud and churning, religious folks usually find and make the times to get still and quiet. It's a way to try and be centered in the midst of life's storms, whether they're personal or collective. Years ago, in fact, when I was in seminary, I read the diaries that Martin Luther King Jr. kept of his time in Montgomery when he was the minister there and the bus boycotts were happening. It's an amazing journey with him, lots of lessons to be drawn from it. But one of the things that struck me most then was how every morning, often before dawn, he would get up to pray, to study scripture or holy texts for him, and to begin his day in stillness and reflection. It's something I've brought into my own life practice. And I think what was made clear then is that even in a time when he was exhausted, and a lot of those entries are about that exhaustion, he was still making time for this. So we're doing the same. We are going to let go of the white supremacy culture characteristic of perfection this morning. We are going to enter into a time of reflection, try and get in touch with our bodies that can become so disconnected from our spirits, our emotions that can get disconnected from our souls in times of upheaval and trauma when we feel overwhelmed. We're going to make space to not necessarily have the right words, not really have had ample time maybe to practice the music, we're going to stumble and experiment our way, feel our way towards mystery and ultimate wonder and revelation that comes in the times when we admit what we do not know and surrender ourselves to be where we are, listening deeply for where we're led to be next. So, I invite you to make space 
right now to be fully present to the next hour. And let's begin remembering that in antiquity, the word for, in more than one culture, the word for breath was also the word for spirit. And so we'll begin as we do every week, doing our meditation on breathing. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. Let's join together. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, when I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out. I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in. I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out. Light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And as you sit home, you can join in with me as we read the covenant. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth and freedom and to help one another. there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle we ring our gong first as we have since last July in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps 
and we let its ringing symbolically stand also for those adults who have lost their lives in these camps, those who remain in such camps, many suffering, separated from their families, and many now infected with COVID-19 or at great risk of infection. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses of the virus we know by name so far. 309,321 have died globally from this virus. 109,791 in the United States alone. And we hold in our hearts all who continue to risk their lives to provide the essential services, suffer for loss of job, and whose lives are especially vulnerable to this disease. And finally, we hold black lives those we have named in the litanies of remembrances of years past and in these most recent weeks. But we hold also all those whose names are memorials to legalize murder and for those whose names were never recorded. In mourning and in hope for the true emancipation of black lives in America to live and love and flourish and be protected, we will ring our gong five times, one for each of the five centuries of life lived under the yoke of slavery, prejudice, and white supremacy culture. May we keep those we have named and all who loved and loved them in our thoughts and in our prayers, and may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week Howsoever, we can.
spirit of life and hope, God beyond naming, love that will not let us go, all that moves to move a heart, break open a people to see its wrongs, reconcile to the truth, tell one true story, and heal in the telling and what such telling requires of those who own it as their own. We hold those we know are in pain, and so I invite us to say the names out loud of those we want to hold up, or you can type them into the chat. Let your heart speak them in silence, however you feel called to name them. We name Ahmad Arbery and his family, George Floyd and his family, Breonna Taylor and her family, the homeless of San Francisco. May all who were named be held in love that is beyond understanding. All who are in need of it find a welling up of the strength that comes from unforeseen places, and all who are in despair remember the hope born against all odds, like spring born from seemingly unyielding winters again and again. Amen. Somebody's calling my name Hush, hush Somebody's calling my name Hush, hush Somebody's calling my name Oh my Lord Oh my Lord, what shall I do? What shall I do? Sounds like freedom. Somebody's calling my name. Sounds like freedom. Someone is calling my name Sounds like freedom Someone is calling my name Oh my Lord, oh my Lord What shall I do, what shall I do Somebody's calling my name Sounds like justice Somebody's calling my name Sounds like justice 
God is calling my name. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? What shall I do? Soon, one morning, death come creeping in my room. Soon, one morning, death come creeping in my room. Soon, one morning, death come creeping in my room. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? What shall I do? I'm so glad Troubled at last always I'm so glad Troubled at last always I'm so For many white people this week, something clicked, something changed. The great river of denial that was flowing through too many souls broke her dam. She overran her ranks right up through our TV screens and marched along streets in your town, in your neighborhood. Maybe you were there marching too. In Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, she recently had a conversation with professor and author Ibram Kendi on how to be an anti-racist. And in it, he said this, the heartbeat historically of racism has been denial has been to deny that one's ideas are racist, one's policies, and certainly that one's self and one's nation is racist. By contrast, the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession, admission, acknowledgement, is the willingness to be vulnerable to identify the times in which we are being racist, is to be willing to diagnose ourselves and our country and our ideas and our policies. And the reason that is the heartbreak is because, like with anything else, the first step is acknowledging the problem. We can't even begin the process of changing ourselves, of acting, in an anti-racist fashion if we're not even willing to admit the times in which we are being racist. 
And so the journey begins. As it always does in such moments. In lamentation and personal confession. What could I have done that I did not do? Why have I been so complacent in my own power and privilege? What is my anger really about? Where does my shame come from? A colleague of my husband's called those she worked with to sit with her, no, to sit with their feelings, to start there. For all of us, white folks and people of color, to be with our bodies and our emotions right now can be hard. They probably don't feel good these days, not all the time at least. Is there tightness in the shoulders? Cramping in the belly? Or has the ability to feel gone a bit dull? I invite each of us to be with it, to be in our bodies, present to them. Because there's truth in these bodies and in our emotions. Truth in where they would lead us, but we have to be willing to dare to listen and follow. So what are you feeling right now? Think about it. Are the emotions you've felt this week, are they familiar? Or are they some of the ones you avoid as much as possible? Could you and I make time in the days ahead to sit and ask what those emotions have to tell us and where they want to take us? Because I imagine it will be somewhere that you and I, all of us, need to go. to shut down, I think, has been part of the problem.
is an American poet who grew up in Buffalo, New York, though she did teach creative writing for four years in the 1980s at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Clifton traced her family roots to the West African Kingdom of Dahomey, which is now recognized to include the Republic of Benin, though its pre-colonial territory was much more vast. Growing up, her mother would tell her, be proud, you're, you're from Dahomey women. And her relatives and ancestors included those who were enslaved in the United States. But Clifton was best known for her poem, Homage to My Hips, and was twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. This poem is entitled, My Dream About Being White by Lucille Clifton. Hey music and me, only white. Hair a flutter of fall leaves, circling my perfect line of a nose. No lips, no behind. Hey, white me. And I'm wearing white history. But there's no future in those clothes. So I take them off and I wake up dancing. Sometimes I feel like a motherless Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long way from home. A long way. I feel like I have no friend Sometimes I feel like I have no friend Sometimes I feel like I have no friend A long way from home 
Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. A long way from home. A long way from home. Lucille Clifton, in her poem, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes, wrote, they ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories. And I keep remembering mine. One of her other poems, Won't You Celebrate With Me, tells of some of that history she keeps remembering. She writes, won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between sunshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Part of the history the history in which the poet says, rightly, there is no future in the reading that Rochelle shared with us, is the one of history dressed in whiteness, at least what whiteness has meant and how it's shown up so far in our history. Part of the history that needs not to be forgotten is the part about its attempt every day and its failure so far to kill, to kill the poet, a non-white woman in America and others. Clifton was writing in the 1960s until her death in 2010, but really the story of her experience, the attempts on her life, body and spirit, could be from any era of U.S. history and even before there was a United States. You know the history, the outline at least, the 401 years since the first black slave was brought to these shores, longer for the native folk under genocidal assault, a history which for all people of color has meant existential threat from birth. If we white folk thought that was no longer true, that innate existential threat part, well, the disproportionate number of infections and death from the COVID-19 virus 
that we have witnessed in the months since March, that should have been wake-up call enough. But the events of the last two weeks played out, most of them on video, blow by horrific blow. While they delivered the death knell to any flowing of the great river of denial we white folks might have allowed to meander through our minds with its false peace. Racism and the existential threat of it is alive. And surviving that threat daily is still a triumph of luck and resilience and determination and I do not know what else cause to celebrate, which is something not to celebrate. Soren Kierkegaard is an existential, Christian existentialist. In Sickness Unto Death, he writes that we are all under some kind of existential despair and alienation from our true Christ-like self, he would say, But he also says that as terrible as it is to wake to that reality, well, it's still better than not knowing the despair and conspiring our whole lives with it. I think that's where a lot of white folks are right now. Of course, I don't know the minds of all white folks, and I won't at all speak for people of color, though I've had conversations this week and tried to listen deeply to what folks have shared. But what I do think all of us know, all of us human beings, is a little extra measure of despair from this week, at least That's been part of the week. But also maybe if we've stayed present to despair in the way my husband's colleague invited folks to stay present to their emotions, maybe we also were reminded that despair often can be a game changer. I mean, with despair, you either yield to it, right? You either give up and you give in and you roll up your tent or into a fetal position and you go home. Or what? Or you resolve to resist and you come out, at least I often do from encounters with despair, you come out like a dragon from its lair, all fire and claw, determined to fight for and protect what's under threat, what you love, what's broken, to rescue it. Of course, for the people of color who are part of this community, and our communities at large, the experience of this week won't be the same entirely as what it's been for white folks. The truth of the evil and the sadism and the structurally sanctioned snuffing out of life and terrorism of life in these United States, that's not new news for our people of color. 
People of color in the U.S. haven't just had to worry about microaggressions, about offensive slights by store clerks, even though those can be deaths by a thousand cuts, and they haven't just had to worry about the macroaggressions of the fact that the bumbling and strangely, though familiarly arrogant white guy or gal leaps ahead and gets the promotion and the recognition before you did. It's always also been much more sinister and insidious and dangerous to be, as Clifton points out, non-white in America. Every person of color in America has pieces of the history that Clifton talks about. The one white folks don't want them to remember and reasons to celebrate yet another year of life what mother of a black man in America has not worried every time he left the house whether he would return home safe? Just start with that. If there has been good news from this last week, I would say, from my vantage point at least, it's been the freedom that all people have or feel to name the truth. I mean, if, if Donald Trump gave white folks permission to be uncivil and racist and ugly and aggressive, these days have given white leaders a chance to step up, to wrestle to name what they see and how they're committed to address it in public ways, ostensibly allowing and encouraging others to hold themselves accountable for what they say. My daughter's privileged private school board and headmistress, for instance, wrote the most jaw-dropping letter this week. It astounded me what I did not know could be part of the conversations or had been about who that community was and wanted to be and would work to become. A member who is a booster of the Cal women's basketball team sent word after a Zoom conference call in which the white coaches were saying things like, in sports, the score at the beginning of the game is 0-0. In life, it is not, and then declaring their commitment to dismantle white supremacy culture in the places that they had power to do so. The NFL has apologized to Colin Kaepernick? I mean, all around, the bastions of white power, symbolic powers of all kinds, are coming to the table. And sure, some of it is fill-in-the-blanks, empty words, but it, a lot of it doesn't feel that way to me. Indian author Arundhati Roy once wrote, not only is another world possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. I don't want to be falsely optimistic, but a few quiet moments this week, I think I could hear her breathing too. 
And of course, the work is just beginning. Every speaker in every rally I've been to has made sure to drive that point home, and every listserv I've signed up for has done the same, and rightfully so. And for us here, the work is beginning too. So it's true elsewhere, but I'm not the leader of all those other places in the world. I'm a minister and a leader here, a place where we have a particular kind of work to commit to and recommit to. The purpose of church, after all, if any of you remember my first sermon here, is as far as I see it, to practice the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, being and becoming citizens of the beloved community here so we can take that embodied knowledge out into the world, outside these walls. And of course, it's not going to be enough here that we put up and held signs saying white silence is violence or to hang our black lives matter banner again, which we will, or even to issue the resolution that we are fine-tuning as we speak and will issue and circulate with people in power. It will be about how we do the work inside these walls and hold ourselves accountable for that work, too. So, for instance, some of what we have in front of us is going to be to begin more robustly naming the hurts and the places where we center whiteness here instead of seeing that the we is bigger than white folks often remember to make it, myself included. And it will be doing our work as white people to read and to learn how to be better allies and to unpack what passes for normative, what privileges we white folks have come to think we deserve and why, so that we can dismantle those. For all of us, it's going to mean committing to learning about our history, the parts that we aren't always told about, that still affect us, though, like history always does. The history of the police force, for instance, which it turns out was founded in our nation as a body to retrieve runaway slaves, which tells us about how insidiousness and racism is baked into it and needs to be baked out of it. And I think it's going to mean creating more space, more protective spaces and opportunities and getting in the staff support to facilitate spaces of healing and nurture for our people of color who, no surprise, come to church needing some things different sometimes than their white church family members do in order to be whole and healed and held. And I am sure that we will figure out what else it means to do the work here together so that we can do the work there better in the way we live in the larger world. And will there be activism, my friends? Well, we're Unitarian Universalists, so really, <laughs> we know there will be. 
We will figure out how to educate ourselves and get seats at the table so we can be part of the conversations about how to dismantle the structures that perpetuate terror and inequity. We can learn and find places where we can serve as better allies with partners who are leading the way in the work. Many I know are already connected to those groups and people who, who have been doing the work for decades. But the work, the work I'm talking about will start here, and it will start here, and we will do it together. One of my favorite parts of white fragility is where Robin D'Angelo, the author, talks about the need to ditch the notion of our own goodness. She points out how all whites are racist because consciously or unconsciously, steeped in toxic culture, we participate knowingly and unknowingly in perpetuating the inequity and trauma of racism in America. So stop fighting to be the good white person, she says, because then you avoid any opportunity to grow, right? I mean, any criticism gets fended off like a champion fencer. Keep it, direct it to someone else. We tear apart, we white folks, sometimes other white folks, so that we can maintain our status as the good white person and we don't hear the places where we have work to do because we're scared if we admit we have work to do, then we're among the bad people. And it's time to get rid of the whole notion, the whole structure of this binary of the good and the bad person and to get that White folks, maybe everybody, but white folks for sure are all muddied up and in the muck of this nation's history and culture, and it's messy, and we will all get messy. That's the way to start and the only way out. I don't have the answers. Why would I? And you don't, I bet, not all of them. And anyone who says they do, they're either a narcissist or not aware of just how ignorant they really are. And yet there are wise voices out there and we will follow them. But to get where we're going, we're gonna to need to cast out the white supremacist notion of leadership as one person that we find who will show us the way and we just all get passive and follow or claim ourselves good for having chosen them to follow and reclaim what a member of the Oakland Church said in that workshop that we were part of years ago, this collective model of leadership, this model in which we acknowledge that each person has a facet a view, a perspective on the truth, gets a bit of revelation because of their life experience and reflection. And no one is off the hook in this work, and all of us must be in it together for us to figure it out, to get as much of the picture and as much of the solution as we can, and to be whole when we come through it. There is no vicarious atonement in this faith tradition. Religion, like life, like the work of anti-racism, is not a spectator sport. Everyone needs to be on the field. Poet David White, who lives in the Pacific Northwest in his poem, sometimes writes about the questions that can make or unmake a life. 
Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. Now is the time, the time we will step into relationship again with these questions, with all the passion and the commitment and the horror and the despair and the solidarity and the hope that this week has given us. The time to cast off the clothing of whiteness that the poet is right has no future and celebrate lives that do not have to survive attempts on their ability to live them and invite all the memories into the story that we come to tell about who we are and honest telling treat and respond to our own despair with fierce determination to step into the future, to the work that we are called to, so that when it is all over, we too can wake up dancing in the beloved community that prophets and priests and silent yearning hearts have dreamed of. Too long deferred. But if you listen, my friends, in a quiet moment, even this week, I bet you can hear the future we've dreamed of breathing. She's on her way. So let's do what we can to prepare ourselves to welcome her. Bless us all in this day, in this time, in this work, now and in the future, weeks and months and years to come. Amen. It seems like a fitting week to sing a particular hymn of aspiration and determination. And so I invite you to join in singing together hymn number 169, We Shall Overcome. Hand in hand, we'll 
shall all be free. We shall all be free someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace for this. This is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday morning worship service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, weekly flame, and much, much more.